The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to Bear Creek Church. My name is Bill Pritchett. We are glad that you are here. Thank you for joining us. And I mean that, too. We really are glad that you're here. And not just because it would be really awkward for me if none of you showed up today. Oh, that is true, so thank you very much. Now, I understand that for many of you, sometimes just getting out of bed in the morning can be a big deal. Sometimes gathering everyone together to come, it's a big deal. And some of you could not come today, and we understand. We, we miss you. We look forward to you being here in person again, but we understand why you're not here. But it is good for us to be together. It's important that we gather. I'm encouraged to hear all of you singing songs of worship along with me. It's encouraging to me to pray together as a church body. I know that every person here can be tempted to to look at somebody else and think about why it's easier for them to be here than for us. The single mom can look at the household with, with both parents and think, well, You have help gathering everyone together to get out the door. The two-parent household can can look at the single person and think, well, you don't have to get anybody ready. You just get yourself ready and go. The single person can look at both of the other situations and think, well, you have accountability in coming for the sake of others. There are others to help you get going. If I don't come, nobody would even notice. So there's an element where It can be hard for us to be here at times. But let's not take this time for granted. It's important that we are here, that we are together. We all need this time, so let's be thankful that we're all here. The last time I was up here, we took a look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Some of you were not here then. Others, you might have slept since then. You may not remember everything, you just remember that it was amazing. And I can understand that. No, I'm kidding with that part, of course. Now, I'd like for us today to to pick up where we left off. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. I'd like us to go ahead and actually read from the beginning of the chapter. And after we've read, I'll give a a brief recap of the first 18 verses. The first 18 verses are good for us to be reminded of. It's a reminder of the gospel, and it's helpful in our our understanding of the text that we'll discuss this morning. Let's take a look at the following verses, because we need to hear this. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, and if you're able, I would invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. 
and burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now we get to our section that we'll focus on today, beginning at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Would you please pray with me? Father God, thank you for this time to be together as a body of believers. Thank you for each person who is here, whether in person or online. I pray that you help us to to be a church body that takes seriously the gospel and our call to encourage one another. I pray that you help us in this time. Give me the words to say. Give us ears to hear. Give us humble hearts to receive these words. Father, we know from your word that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So Lord, help us to not be puffed up in our accomplishments or by our gifts, but to see everything as that, as a gift from you and your grace. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So last time when we looked at the first half of chapter 10, we talked about that that God is not after our goats and bulls. He's not after sacrifices. He's after our hearts. He desires our obedience. Now, the good news of the gospel is that in verse 12, Jesus sat down. He's not like the priests who never sat because their work was never done, but his work was finished. So we view obedience to God as this is his desire and what we work for, but not to earn our salvation. We don't do that. Jesus sat down. Then we got to the reassuring good news of verses 17 and 18. 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now we jump into verses 19 to 25. I want us to pay attention to the fact that the first part of this section repeats the phrase, since we have. And the second part of this section repeats the phrase, let us. So in other words, there are things that since we have, let us do this in response. We start this section with the word therefore. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, therefore, with what we just said, with what we just said about the gospel and about the work of Christ, to quote the title of the book by Francis Schaeffer, how then shall we live? This, therefore, is a transition from doctrine to application. Therefore, what we believe must transfer into our life and actions. As Christians, how we ought to live in light of the gospel. The writer also says, brothers, in Christ we are not just companions, but we are a family. We'll come back to this idea a little bit later. So it says, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So this is our first since we have since we have confidence in our access to God. This confidence comes from the torn curtain of Christ's crucified body. We remember what it says in Matthew 27. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Jesus' death on the cross brought with it a simultaneous tearing from top to bottom of the curtain, that had previously barred the way into the Holy of Holies. We have confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus. Remember that before, only the priest could enter the holy places. But now, because of the blood of Jesus, we have access. We can enter. Before, the high priest would slip behind the curtain once a year, but now believers had permanent access through the blood and torn body of Christ. As one commentator noted, Their confidence was certainly not a swaggering or a bragging thing, but it was a real confidence in permanent access. This nicely complemented what it says earlier in Hebrews chapter 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. They had deep confidence in their access to God. And notice, too, when it says in verse 19, to enter by the blood of Jesus. Not only Jesus on our behalf, but also we ourselves enter into God's heavenly sanctuary through dependence on Jesus' sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, the writer tells us, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. How? On our behalf. And the new and living way that we see in verse 20 is significant. The word that we see as new, the original meaning was freshly slaughtered. Jesus is the new way, the freshly slaughtered sacrifice who opens the way to God. It seems almost contradictory that the freshly slaughtered way would also be the living way. But Jesus' death conquered death and gives life. His death is the only way to life that is everlasting. 
So unlike the sacrifices before that, well, they died and stayed dead, Jesus is a living once-for-all-time sacrifice. Now we look at verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, so here's another since we have. This one, since we have a great priest. Jesus not only opened the way to God, but he is now our great priest over the house of God. He does not merely show the way to God or even provide the way to God. He takes us with him to God and ministers for us in heaven. So we have two things. We have confidence to enter, and we have a great high priest. This confidence in access is especially strong because it is coupled with a confidence in Christ's priestly advocacy. As was said by Kent Hughes, See this access and advocacy, the dual sources of our confidence together. See what strength they bring. Jesus is both the curtain, our access, and the priest, our advocate. His torn body and shed blood provides our access to the presence of the Father. And in our access, he is our perpetual priestly advocate. This was meant to make the ancient church and us confidently point our ship into the high seas with strength and power. We are not only to exist in a hostile culture, but to buck its waves. While arrogance can never be the Christian's way, confidence must mark his life. Listen to Paul's bold confidence. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. So what we see laid out before us here is a threefold manner of life is our reasonable response to Christ's saving ministry to us. Because of our great possessions in Christ, we should feel an obligation to then live a certain way. So we have here two since we haves, since we have confidence to enter and since we have a great priest. And then three times in Hebrews 10, 22 to 25, the writer follows those up and says, let us. So since we have, let us draw near with a true heart in verse 22. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, verse 23. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works in verse 24. Together, these exhortations present a life pattern that every believer is to make his or her own. Let's talk about these, and we'll start with the first one. Let us draw near to God. Let's look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the Greek term behind true carries the idea of being sincere, genuine, without ulterior motive. Since we have confidence to approach God's throne, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, in fact, draw near to God. But what does this mean? What does it look like to draw near to God? 
Now, remember what we're talking about in Hebrews. Where we've come in the book is the writer is saying that previously there was the tabernacle, but now there's Jesus. Now there is the gospel. So this call to draw near, we need to look at it in light of the gospel. So I say that to say that it may not always look the same to everyone, and yet there are things that help us all to draw near to God. So because it doesn't always look the same, we have to fight the temptation for legalism. Just saying, well, well, this works for me, therefore you should do this. And that doesn't work for me, therefore you shouldn't do that. Now, somewhat comically, if we can be, if we can be honest, some of us, in order to get away from, from legalism, in order to get away from a mentality of, I need to follow a set of rules we make a list of things that we need to do to get out of legalism. As if to say, well, I need to make this, this checklist of things that I need to do to get out of this checklist mentality to Christianity. Uh, maybe it's just me. So this is not going to be a how to draw near to God in 10 easy steps. But there are things that we need to be doing. So often we can feel like we are not close to God. And then somebody will will ask us if we're reading our Bible or how's our prayer life. And then we have to be honest and say, oh, yeah, it's actually been a long time. So we need to be in the Word. And also, like I said in the beginning, things like this, things like gathering together and coming to church, they certainly help us here. Prayer. Prayer is huge with this, both individually and corporately. Singing worship to the Lord together as a body of believers also helps us here. Opening the word together helps us to to draw near to him. To draw near, we fix our eyes or our gaze on Jesus. I love the verse in 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. Have you ever been introduced to somebody? And while they're talking, they're kind of looking past you, looking over your shoulder, looking at somebody else. Maybe they're hoping that you would introduce them to that person, so they're they're looking past you. A true heart is that we are genuine and sincerely focused on God not distracted by other things or other priorities. So I would ask you, what are things in your life that cause you to draw near to God? Is it singing songs of worship around the house or listening to songs of worship? Is it having time when you turn off all the noise, maybe you turn off your cell phone and get rid of all the distractions, just focus on the Lord? I've known people who will get in their car and they just go for a drive or they go into the mountains. What is it for you? Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I like how one commentator broke this verse down. That let us draw near with a true heart A true heart functions as it is supposed to. It relates to God adoringly with right affections and priorities. Let us draw near as our call to worship. 
We are to draw near with a sincere heart. That speaks of a genuine heart devoted to pursuing God. That's not just going through the motions. That's not just showing up to church so I'm good. It's hypocritical to be worshiping God when you're really apathetic or preoccupied with self. Draw near to God with your whole heart in full assurance of faith. The sincere, believing heart is filled with assurance in God through unwavering trust in Him and His promises. We are to draw near in full assurance of faith. The Hebrews were clinging to old covenant forms of worship to find acceptance before God. But the coming of Christ put an end to ceremony and sacrifice. Think about it. So each person had to be willing to say, I'm coming to God in full confidence that I am not saved by a system of ritual. I come fully by faith in Jesus Christ. You too are to be fully assured that God accepts your worship, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus did in providing atonement for you. With hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, Here the the writer is referring back to a prior section. He says, as we discussed previously, the old covenant sacrifices failed at this point, being unable to please the conscience. By sprinkling here refers to the blood of Christ, which alone sets free the sinner's guilty conscience. Through his blood, we know that our sins are removed and our hearts are set free from the burden of guilt. We are to draw near to God, having our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience. That is, you you come to God with the knowledge that you are unworthy to be in His presence. The only reason anyone can come to Him is the blood of Christ, which which was shed on the cross as a cleansing for sin. Our bodies washed with pure water. We think of baptism and what baptism symbolizes with the cleansing with pure water. We are clean. We're to draw near, having our bodies washed with pure water. That refers to the daily cleansing by the Word of God. The process of sanctification brings to light our sinful thoughts and exposes our sinful behavior. Before you worship, confess the sins that God uncovered through His Word so you can draw near in purity. So in light of the Gospel, in light of the fact that Jesus sat down, the writer says, So since we have confidence in our access to God, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Let us take our relationship with the Lord seriously and not see it as a mere transaction. The next exhortation flows naturally from the preceding one, because if we draw near to God, we will be disposed to heed the command to persevere in hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The hope that is in Jesus. We know that we're not talking about the hope that exists in the world, kind of a fingers crossed, almost begging kind of attitude. No, hold fast. We have confidence in this hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Many of us have had experiences where 
We've experienced the faithfulness of God, and when we are reminded of that or we think on that, we are encouraged and we're, because we're reminded that God can be trusted. But the Christian's hope has substance. The hope that our text commends here in verse 23 is a conscience reference back to the writer's statement in chapter 6. Beginning of verse 19, it says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. It is grounded in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, and intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is anchored at the right hand of God. It is so substantial and real that it's called an anchor. The final exhortation in this section is to mutually consider one another, and it extends through verse 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When we look at verse 25, many people look at that and they just see the church gathering. That what's being described is, do not neglect going to church. And, and so we feel good when we go to church. and we, we check that box and we can say, okay, well, that's not me. Right? I'm not neglecting, so I'm good. And while I do think that it's talking about church on Sunday morning, it's not limited to Sunday morning, especially when we look at it with verse 24 in mind. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Verse 24 implies a knowledge or an intimacy that is sometimes difficult to accomplish on a Sunday morning. So while, yes, this is talking about what we do here on a Sunday morning, We are not to neglect this gathering together. We shouldn't limit this to thinking that it's just about showing up on a Sunday. We're to be Christians all week long, not just Sunday morning. And so this command to not neglect the gathering together, this is telling us that we are to do more than just fill a chair. We're to stir one another up. We're to encourage one another. This doesn't mean that I'm saying that there are other equal alternatives. We need to not neglect the gathering together, the the worshiping together, the encouraging one another. We also should not neglect other gathering together. Today, for example, after the service, we're doing a meal together. This is a wonderful opportunity to do exactly what we're talking about. If you're available, don't neglect this gathering together. This is where that happens. Our Christian walk and our being in community with with one another does not only exist at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. We need to be doing this during the week, too. And if there are times when we're sick or there's another reason why we're unable to come, all the more reason to make sure that we are looking for other opportunities during the week. We need this time to be together. Like I just said, It does not just say, do not neglect gathering together. But it tells us what we're supposed to do when we're together. We don't just come and sit down in a chair, but we come and we have things to do. We're to stir up one another to love and good works. We're to encourage one another. One another, that's that's all of us. We're to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And it is only in the local body to which one is committed 
that there can be the level of intimacy that is required to carefully stimulating fellow believers. And it is in this setting that we can encourage one another. Furthermore, and we discussed this passage this week at our noon men's group, when Paul gave Timothy special instruction about the public meetings, he said, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Part of the emphasis in public worship includes these three things. Hearing the word, being called to obedience and action through exhortation, and teaching. It is only in the context of the local assembly that these can most effectively take place. Acts 2.42 shows us what the early church did when they met together. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. They learned God's word and the implications of it in their lives. They joined to carry out acts of love and service to one another. They commemorated the Lord's death and resurrection through the breaking of bread or communion. And they prayed. Of course, we can do these things individually, but God has called us into his body. And the church is the local representation of that worldwide body. And we should gladly minister and be ministered to among God's people. Active local church membership is imperative to living a life without compromise. It is only through the ministry of the local church that a believer can receive the kind of teaching, accountability, and encouragement that is necessary for him to stand firm in his convictions. God has ordained that the church provide the kind of of environment where an uncompromising life can thrive. This works best within the local church by being a part of a church body. And there are some Christians today that are perfectly content with watching sermons online by some famous pastor in another part of the world, and they'll call that going to church. No. I think what's being described here is about being a part of the local church. So our context is about being a part of this church. You need to be known by your church. That's how they will be able to stir you up and encourage you by being vulnerable and honest, as well as encouraging others. You don't get this the same way at at Rotary or the Country Club or various other places of shared interest. We gather here because we are broken, because we are sinners, because we have been saved and we want to worship and gather and encourage one another. Sometimes a church body is comprised of people who otherwise have very little in common. But the things we have in common is the thing of, of highest importance. Consider how to stir up one another. The meaning in this context is that of stimulating or inciting someone to do something. This implies a level of knowledge. We need to know each other in order to do this, or at least it's easier if we know. It can be hard to come up with how to encourage or to stir someone up to love and good works if we don't know anything about them. So we need to get to know one another. So how do we do that? What does this look like? Obviously, we have to be together. But also, it means being willing to share and being willing to encourage one another. That requires a level of knowing about each other. Let me share with you some of our story. When Jessica and I were first married, there were people who 
for giving us lots of advice. Actually, I suppose that started before we got married. One of those pieces of of advice that we were given was, well, you're going to want to wait five years before you start having kids. Now, we were young, and many of the people telling us this were older Christians, so we thought, oh, okay, I guess that's what we'll do. I mean, if that's, that's wise, then that's what we'll do. Well, after we'd been married about a year and a half, we found out that we were pregnant. We were both really excited. After we found out, we shared the exciting news with people, including people here at church. Then a couple of months into the pregnancy... We found out that we had miscarried the baby. We were devastated. The next week when we came to church, Steve Murphy, who knew we were pregnant, he asked how we were doing. Jessica, of course, answered him and told him what had happened. And Steve immediately grabbed both of us, and we hugged and cried and prayed. And this was not long after Steve and Jody had lost their son, Aiden. This was a special moment that all these years later I still remember, and it's still special to me. Now, some might have said when we were first pregnant that we should keep it quiet. Oh, don't say anything because, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. But had we kept it quiet, had we not told people, had Steve not been at church that day and had not asked how we were doing and had we not been willing to share, that moment of encouragement would not have happened. It took a willingness to be vulnerable on all of us. Steve didn't come to church that day knowing that would happen. He just came. He saw us. He knew of our news, and he asked how we were doing. When we told him of the miscarriage, his immediate response was to pray. Now, I don't, I don't share that story to say, look how awesome Steve is. Though you certainly could draw that conclusion. No, I, I share that story to say that sometimes that's how it works. We don't always arrive knowing how we will be used that day, but we arrive. And we arrive willing to be used by the Lord. After that miscarriage, we got pregnant again. And sure, the thought of not telling people, it crossed our minds. But we were excited, so we didn't want to keep it a secret. But this time we didn't have a miscarriage, and this is when Anna was born. After that, we got pregnant again. And again, after a couple of months, we had another miscarriage. And again, we were devastated. But this is one of the things that's interesting about going through something like that. Is when you do, it's like people start coming out of the woodwork to say that they too had a miscarriage. It can be encouraging when going through hard things to be surrounded by others who know how you are feeling. After that second miscarriage, we got pregnant again. And again, the thought of not telling people crossed our minds. But again, we were excited. We didn't want to keep it a secret. This is when Rebecca was born. After Rebecca, we got pregnant again. And this time we made it past the first couple of months. So we were encouraged. But then around the seventh month, the doctors knew that something was wrong. They were just not sure what it was. Then in the beginning of December, we had been sent up to Portland due to the fact that they knew that something was wrong. And while in Portland, our son Luke was born. 
We spent three and a half weeks in the hospital in Portland while Luke underwent a couple of surgeries before finally coming home on Christmas Eve. By the way, that was the only Bear Creek Christmas Eve service we've ever missed. Over the next several months, we were home and in and out of the hospital, and I was working, and Jessica was taking care of Luke and Anna and Rebecca. And people from the church came, and they were helping us how they could. People would come and clean and do laundry and iron clothes. And this can be humbling to have people into your home to come and clean your bathroom and fold your underwear. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I have rules there, so that was humbling. And this, we were experiencing something where there were not a lot of people coming out of the woodwork to say that they knew what we were going through. There were some, but not a lot. In some ways, we felt very alone, yet also felt very loved and cared for by our church family. At five months old, Luke went to be with the Lord. The day he died, we were in a room surrounded by our family and our church family. We had his home going in the gym next door, surrounded by our church family. After going through the loss of our son, you can imagine the anxiety when we got pregnant again. The high stress level that didn't really seem to, to let up until Abigail was born. You see, Luke was never able to cry or make a sound. And so when Abigail was born, Jessica and I were holding our breath, waiting to hear if she would cry. We were crying and thankful when she did, as strange as that may sound. Then the Lord blessed us again with another pregnancy. And that's when he brought us Rachel. This is why I talk about it in terms of family, a church family. Through each of these, there were so many ways that the people of this church body would come along and encourage us and keep us going and stir us up to love and good works. Many with prayer, some with more practical needs, but all are things the Lord used to encourage us. Yet so much of this requires us to to know one another, to be vulnerable, to share our stories, and to share our time. There is a responsibility to verbally spur others on through words of encouragement. There is amazing power in in an encouraging word or an encouraging act. You and I can change a life with a kind word. Encouragement is a Christian duty. Lives of stirring through prayer and encouragement are gifts the church needs desperately. In closing, Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 is no insignificant text. Its role in moving from instruction to application gives it huge significance. It tells us that if we have the proper confidence that comes from our access and advocacy before God, there are three things we must do for the sake of the church. And when right now the church can feel like it's under attack in our society, we should take this even more seriously. We must draw near in prayer to God with a wholehearted sincerity. Our human spirit must be engaged in prayer and worship. We must hold on to the anchor of hope we possess. Our hope is in Jesus and is anchored in heaven where he intercedes for us. This is no foolish optimism, but a tremendous reality. We must devote ourselves to the corporate church and do everything we can to stir each other to love 
and good works. Many of you know that one of my favorite Puritans is John Owen. And he said, How can we possibly believe the promises concerning heaven, immortality, and glory when we do not believe the promises concerning our present life? How can we be trusted when we say we believe these promises but make no effort to experience them ourselves? It is just here that men deceive themselves. It is not that they do not want the gospel privileges of joy, peace, and assurance, where they are not prepared to repent of their evil attitudes and careless lifestyles. Some have even attempted to reconcile these things and ruined their souls. But without the diligent exercise of grace and obedience, we shall never enjoy the graces of joy, peace, and assurance. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this church body. You have orchestrated our being together. We praise you. We praise you for bringing us here this morning. Left to our own, apart from the desires that you put into our hearts, we would not be here. We praise you for the gift of salvation. That though we are all sinners, Christ died and paid the penalty for those sins. And Lord Jesus, you are the only one that could. Now it is done. It is finished. Our debt has been paid in full, not merely transferred to a new holder of the debt that we, might, that we must now work off and satisfy. Lord, we may not fully understand it, but we praise you for it. Let your name be above all other names. Let us see you as greater than everything else. Help us to grasp the bigness of who you are, but then to be joyful that you still care about the smallest details of our lives. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.